Welcome back to the Thanks Morris podcast. I'm your host, Marie, the SLP. We're going to get right into it here. We are back for part two with my friend Grace talking all about her foundations as a general education teacher and how that led her to becoming an SLP. So let's get to it. I guess we talk about that too, like what the prevalence is and kind of those risk factors to kind of start that education piece um, here. Yeah, so this can be sure. some, something that we can also send not only teachers, but send speech pathologists to, you know. Yeah, definitely. To you think, and. Yeah, for sure. I think like some of what I, I mean, some of what I'm going to go over, like everybody had in their grad classes, but you might not have thought about it since then. So. I haven't, I'll be honest. <laughs> no, I, I mean, right. It's like, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So I actually went back to some of my notes to look for kind of these, I like to start, you know, with like the facts just to get like yeah, a, I love that. right. So close to 5% of kids have a, a language impairment, right. Specifically referred to, or previously referred to in the literature as an SLI, which I'm pretty sure is a specific language impairment. Right. Okay. And then now, at least in my grad program, the shift was for the most part toward referring to it as a developmental language disorder. But that's part of where, like, some of the challenges with the research and compiling all of it lie because it's been referred to as, I think, one of the, um, as, like, 32 different things, right? There's, like, a ton of different ways to label it. So that's one of the challenges. But if 5% of kids have a language disorder, that means out of a class of 20 kids, one of them has a language impairment, right? And I don't know about the teachers who are going to be listening to this or not, but my classes were a lot bigger than that in Arizona. I had 30 kids my first year, 32 kids my second year, you know, 31, and then 34. So you have a lot of kids, right? Especially in those upper grades, which makes it even more important kind of that we identify these kids, right? Because the academic standards get so much higher, you know, right. as, yeah, as the grade level increases. So so language impairments are less common than speech sound disorders. So speech sound disorders are eight to 9% of kids. Um, and then problems in language are the most common issues in the clinical presentation of children aged three to 16 years old. So it's a lot more you know, prevalent and out there than we think too. Um, and then so related to the risk factors, Interestingly, there's a higher prevalence of language impairments in kids that have siblings. So there's something linked there, which I'm not sure what that is. Um, and also a risk factor for a developmental language disorder is an expressive language delay. So like a late talker would be, you know, a kiddo at about two years old that has less than 50 words or they're not using or producing two word combos at that time. Yeah. So. No, that's, it's important because then what happens is this ties into literacy. It ties into, I mean, they, as they go, even, you know, you go into high school, pub, there's speaking, you know, oral presentations and things like that. And I like what you said about the larger class sizes. I mean, it makes it harder on teachers too yeah. when they have 32 plus students. And I think about middle school teachers because yeah. what's happening in middle school is you're, you're going, you know, the kids are rotating through teachers. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're getting my mom has three different um, groups a day that she sees yeah. of however many plus kids. So your mom has bigger classes than 30. I bet. I can't, I think so. I'm sure. I'm sure. You know? Yeah. I, I don't even. School class sizes are really big. They are. Expect those kids to have all those prereq skills to be able to succeed. Mm -hmm. be able yeah. To next and yeah. 
need to learn. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and I hear it in my district all the time. Oh, our numbers are going up as far as special ed numbers, you know, because Mm -hmm. kids are getting identified and, um, you know, they put a big, we're, we're trying as like preschool speech pathologists, you know, we're trying to say, Hey, like let's, you know, we need more parent information. We need, you know, because early intervention and everything is so key. Right. And, and we know that and the research says that even health insurance companies, like that's going to save them money, you know? Exactly. Really so, motivate, like the big players, right? Right. So it's just, you know, thinking about those risk factors, thinking about how much harder it might be later on in schooling for um, identification. Uh, we want to be sure that we are, you know, that teachers when they're not even preschool, but at least like kindergarten, first grade, second grade, that they're kind of recognizing, okay, where are maybe these things breaking down where it might be language and where can we collaborate and talk with our speech pathologist? I think, you know, it's, it'd be huge if teachers just felt a little bit more empowered maybe to recognize those things um, and to talk to their speech pathologist. I think it's that divide where it's like, just come, you know, I personally, I'm like, I'm an open door. Like you come to me. Yeah. Um, Sometimes, you know, I walk during certain seasons of the year, I'm, you know, I remember being in elementary school speech pathologist and I'm like hiding, I'm like, I don't want to run into teachers because I'm getting so many referrals right now and I'm overwhelmed. Right. But, yeah. But that's not your fault. That's a system problem. Right. So it's yeah. like, I mean, which is the other, this is a double-edged sword. Like if we're missing all these kids, think about how much higher caseloads would be too. So literacy is super important um, related to language impairments, especially because kids with both speech and language challenges are at an increased risk of having literacy, you know, challenges, difficulties. Um, research has also shown a direct link between reading and child spoken language, grammar, and vocabulary. So a lot of those underlying skills related to language that some of those kiddos struggle with are also going to be underlying skills for literacy, like, um, you know, phonological awareness, oral language, grammar, grammatical skills, lexical narrative skills, things like that. Um, Alphabet knowledge, you know, concepts about print, like there's so many pieces that need to come together in order for literacy skills to build, you know, and I think, I think a lot of times, those, I don't think they're always included in the general curriculum. Um, And so especially, you know, it's kind of like a lot of kids don't need as much explicit instruction in those areas as would kids with CLD. Literacy is, again, I feel like it's just when I have, I've heard teachers like I'll be in the hallways and stuff and their main concerns sometimes are that reading and, Mm -hmm. you know, I personally, and I've had, I I hear SLPs kind of go both ways on this. Um, I think it's more of an old school kind of thought as far as literacy goes to be like, okay, well, maybe the RSP teacher and things like that can work on that stuff. But so much of language comprehension is involved in literacy. And um, I think that it's so important for RSP teachers or resource, I'm sorry, I I use my little acronyms all the time, but a resource specialist, you know, special education teacher plus general education teacher plus a speech pathologist have a lot that they can work on with that literacy, um, with those literacy skills. Let's talk about language impairment. Um, Yeah, no, for sure. So in high school, we're taught there's, you know, two main avenues of language, right? There's receptive and there's expressive. And now the more I work with kids, it's kind of like, 
and I know there's schools of thought in among the SLP community as well. Like when when does receptive language end and when does expressive language begin, right? So I think that you can you can target it, but I think inevitably you're gonna end up targeting do both domains, right? So technically there's expressive language disorders in which a child has trouble putting what they wanna say into words. And then there's receptive where they have trouble understanding information. And a lot of times, you know, that can be seen like following directions in the classroom and things like that. Um, and it's also more noticeable when a kid has an expressive language disorder because, you know, those kiddos might be using shorter sentences. And if you think about it, and I didn't really have this revelation until I was in grad school for speech pathology about in terms of just understanding, you have to have a receptive understanding before you can expressively produce anything, right? So when we're testing kids, almost all of the work we use for kids' grades and things like that is expressive, right? So we don't really measure receptive. So I think it's just interesting to think about, like, if there's expressive challenges, you're going to have to back up, you know, and look at the understanding and comprehension piece, too, inevitably. But that also makes sense as to why um, I think expressive language disorders would be easier to note, you know, because it's in production of or in the words they're using, you know, so some signs might include like using filler words like um or like while they're trying to think of whatever words, so kind of that anomia piece um, and also using general words as opposed to specific vocabulary, right, like thing or that versus like a drink or something more specific. Um, and there's also the piece with language disorders where there's a working memory component where they have that's often a difficulty and so then there's also difficulty like learning retaining and using new vocabulary in an expressive language disorder too right or sorry yeah in an expressive language disorder so the child might use short or basic sentences might emit pronouns or verbs when talking um, often they have a shy or quiet demeanor because they might notice that there's differences you know in the way that they speak versus other people. Um, and also a big tell is narratives, right? How do they tell stories from their personal life? Are they sequenced appropriately? Do they make sense? Can you, you know, can you follow it? Um, because a lot of times they won't. And, and I say that like so passionately because I have a kiddo that comes to mind and I think about the way she told stories, you know, and I think about I was always like, what is she talking about? Like, I really couldn't follow. There wasn't seemed to be like a main idea. You know, she would misuse pronouns. So the meaning would get lost often. She would like introduce new characters that weren't in the beginning of the story that she was retelling. And so it was just very, it was very hard to follow her. And I think about now, you know, how is that gonna affect her and her literacy skills and her writing skills and her writing skills, right? Writing is like the hardest thing. And these kiddos, you know, writing is, an expressive language domain, right? So it's kind of like the ultimate beast. So I just think about, yeah, how those things will be, how those will manifest later too. And yeah. so, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up writing um, because that totally reminds me that I had, um, when I was in my CF year, I worked with an SLP who, you know, we were doing an assessment on like an older, I think, I think it was like a fifth grader kind of there were some concerns like the, the teacher basically was like I don't really know what what's going on I just I'm seeing a lot of things kind of across the board of you know and so we brought the student in and we're like 
we'll have, we'll have him write. Um, and I was like, why are we making him write? Like, this is a speech evaluation or language evaluation. And that's what she said. She was like, you know, well, writing is a form of language expression. And then it made me think about when I was in um, grad school, one of the things, actually my boyfriend that taught me this um, at the time when he was helping me study for my comprehensive exams, because I was, you know, writing out like how I would present everything. So when I wrote it out, I did it very like research based, like this research says, da -da 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 and da -da 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 -da, you know, and yeah. he was like, you shouldn't be writing like that. Like who taught you to write like that? I'm like everybody, you know, everybody kind of taught us, you know, the, the, um, what's it called? What is, what is the, you know, there's like ML, MLA and then there was, um, what we, Oh, like the format, like the format. Um, yeah. Like what formatting APA. APA. Thank you. Yeah. That's what it is. And he's like, Hey, you should be writing how you talk, like write how you speak. And I guess that was something his mom taught him, you know, and I was like, that's an interesting thing. But when I, when I just wrote how I spoke and then, you know, you go in and you add like where you would yeah. comma or whatever, but he's like, just write how you speak. And mm -hmm. it does help. It definitely helps because I was so always so focused on the formatting from like middle school on with learning MLA and stuff that it kind of, I hated writing and now I love it. I mean, I, I do it every day. <laughs> like I love it so much. But I think yeah. when, I, when you give that yourself that permission to write how you speak, um, it's, it's helpful as a writer, but it's also, you know, when you are looking at evaluating a child with a language, with visible language impairment, you, looking at how they write is a tell of how, like you said, it's that narrative in their mind. Um, and it right. It's like the only way to tangibly see like their inner monologue if you will or how exactly. they're thinking mm -hmm. exactly so you know it's a good skill to to use as an adult maybe for like giving speeches and stuff and it's also helpful with evaluation to see how that narrative yeah. really works um so I just love that you brought that up because I think that's a huge point that gets missed and it's something that a teacher can right do right away like if they're concerned yeah. have them write about something um, and then exactly. maybe talk about it with the speech pathologist. Right. Um, well, and the teachers know, you know, the, the kids who like struggle with cohesion in the writing and the kids who don't. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's, and, and they're doing it every day already, you know, they're having their students, write. So it, like you said, they already know and they can, they already have samples of it. Exactly. Um, so I guess that kind of leads us into also, like I kind of talked about how, you know, I want teachers, just like now I, you know, I'm big on parent education and parent training. Yeah. I want parents to feel empowered to do what we do, or at least use some of our strategies and our skills in the classrooms or, or at home yeah. with their students. For and sure. I think, you know, teachers also have the skills to support their students with language impairments, whether or not those students have already been identified. But you know, especially in the schools we have, you know, the student study, I don't know about for you, but we have student study teams before we go into an IEP. So if teachers have concerns, we start there. So it's, mm -hmm. there's a long drawn out process yeah. um, with some of these things with getting evaluated with getting yeah. services. So teachers should have ways already in yeah. place, you know, to support their students. Um, sometimes it does mean more, more manpower in the classrooms, which I, I know, know. no yeah. school district wants me to say that out loud right now, but I'm gonna, yeah, no, seriously. Yeah. We when do. I, yeah. When I was a teacher in Arizona, if you wanted to re um, refer a kid for child study, you had to do like six weeks of targeted intervention of whatever mm -hmm. they told you to do, you know, to mm -hmm. see 
it was kind of like tier two RTI stuff yeah. in the whole group setting, which is also important because that just shows you like where the SLP can be involved in that too. Sure. In a perfect world where we, you know, have all this time and yeah, like you were saying, manpower. Yeah. Yeah. We need the manpower. I've, I'm big on that. <laughs> I think that would help oh, for, in a lot, for a lot of ways. It would help our students. Exactly. It would help us. Um, but what are other ways, just maybe like a few quick tips for teachers that they can use, you know, on a daily basis to support students? Yeah, no, definitely. Okay, <laughs> okay. so um, you can break, the biggest piece of advice I would say is using visuals, right? Even like a visual schedule, you know, for the kids to follow or even if, they're doing a piece of writing on how to, you know, they can do the visual pieces first to help kind of center their thoughts and plan because we know that these kids have challenges with like executive function too, which planning all that jazz, right? So you can use visuals, 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 which I didn't really feel like good <laughs> until I was in grad school. And I, and I think about how much these kids maybe don't have that skill of just like visualizing in their minds, like a plan or how I'm going to do things before, which really helps you yeah. like be more successful with it. That was on um, Instagram, Tara Sumter SLP. She's like an executive yeah. functioning specialist and I've yeah. learned from her. Um, but I think that's another thing you can help these kids with is having them like visualize a plan for how they're going to do something and then do it, you know, and kind of check in, like monitor, like, oh, am I following the plan? Did the plan work? Did I have to go to plan B, you know? So yeah giving them practice with that skill, I think is, is really important. And also like chunking information, you know, chunking auditory information, chunking written information, if you're going to have them be reading, you know, so it's not so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Because I think that is really, you know, that's tricky too. Mm -hmm. um, be patient with them, right? Use wait time. These kids are going to need more time because they're literally translating what you asked of them. And they're having to think about you know, what order am I going to put the words in? What words am I going to use? What verb tenses am I going to use? Um, and then they're having to, you know, produce that. And kids that have language disorders are going to struggle with one or more of those components of language, you know. Yeah. Um, and also I think, and I think, I think in the curriculum that I use, like when I, when I was a teacher, like for reading, I think this, it did a good job of um, having you embed like think alouds. I think those oh, are really yeah. like modeling how to think about information. Like, oh, I'm going to read the first sentence. And I know that that usually helps me think about the main idea, you know? So then I'm going to read the next sentence and think, oh, does that, is that about the same thing? You know? Yeah. I think that's really helpful. Um, also, kind of, I said this kind of earlier, but like modeling just above the student's level, right? I feel like I got really good at this when I was working with students who are largely monolingual when I was a teacher is give directions like one word longer than their typical sentence length, right? So if a kid is speaking in three word sentences, you might give them directions that are four words long just to make sure that it's something that's at their level. So it's not gonna just be too tricky. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And one other thing I was going to say is allow a student to show their learning receptively instead of expressively, because that will show you that they are comprehending it, you know, on some level, like often our receptive knowledge about something is greater than our expressive output, right? Yeah. So just think 
about like letting a student choose the picture that most represents something, you know, because I would mm -hmm. never have thought to do that when I was a teacher. And it seems so obvious now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know. And I remember being in like elementary school and having like those different graphic organizers and different things with like writing. And then you'd have to like chunk everything and uh, maybe at one point they would have us draw a picture in it or something. I just remember like those little tests and I'm like, oh, like our teachers were doing those, but that was back when we were in elementary school. I don't think those things are happening as often. I shouldn't say they're not happening, but I, when I've gone into elementary school classrooms, yeah, um, I don't necessarily see as much of an emphasis on all of those things because there is just, there's so many different standards and there's so much they want these kids doing. Um, I might see that in like kindergarten now, right? The use of those things. So yeah, for sure. I think that's all really great information. No, I, um, I know like, but I just think it's so interesting, you know, that you, have, you have like these epiphanies after grad school and you're just like, you Oh, it all makes sense. You do. And you'll keep having them. Uh, I promise <laughs> at least four years after I have, oh, them, I like, you'll have them for the rest, it, especially if you have that mindset of like continuing to learn, right. From, yeah, for sure. from you and your students or, you know, your clients and things like that. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and, and chatting with me on a Saturday. Um, I know we have, we have our time difference. Yeah, it was so fun. Thank you so much. Um, and we can find you on Instagram. I'm going to link all of your stuff, but you have, um, you have your Instagram, Gracie SLP. Um, and then you also are on Teachers Pay Teachers, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm on Teachers Pay Teachers and boom. Nice. And have you, how's that been? Just a random question for you, but how's it's good. Honestly, like I, when I, I started it when I was in quarantine or when well, I, when I was in quarantine, when quarantine, like when COVID yeah. started, I was supposed to have an internship, but it got canceled. Because oh. of COVID. So I had all this, like I was taking four classes. So I was busy with that, but I also had time. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of more, I put out a lot more like last year, like I'm kind of getting back into it now that I'm like feeling more confident, you know, and yeah. That I like have a job and then I don't have school and stuff. Um, yeah. and not so crazy busy, but it's been really good. It's crazy how good. much it has exploded. I know. Like, uh, yeah. I know. I, yeah, it's crazy. So, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's been a learning experience. For I feel like sure. everything with Instagram, it's like such a steep learning curve. I'm like, oh what was I even doing? Like, <laughs> I know. No, I know. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I don't know. I've become so much more comfortable just like pushing my comfort zone, which good I think you. is good. No, and now yeah. you have a podcast. And then, I know, that's what uh, I mean. I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do, do good. it. Good, good. I'm glad. I love it when people like, when I always, you know, because I think that's how you came on. I gave a little like, if you want to come on, let me know. Um, yeah. And I love when I have, it, you've done it. And then my friend Lauren Juice did it. Like, maybe this is like, four months ago now, five months ago, but she was the same way where she was like, I didn't know if I should ask you. And I was like, no, anybody, I don't care. Like, yeah. You yeah. know, because I love, yeah. you all have such unique perspectives and you know, it's for me, it's like, I'm all about like pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. So yeah, I'm glad I'm grateful, I guess, to you guys that you, you feel like this is a good space to do that in and you're comfortable yeah, with that. Um, I do. I think more people should do it. You know, it's not that yeah. scary. It's kind of it's, with everything, like with anxiety before you're like, oh, I'm yeah. gonna, I don't know. I'm not going to remember anything of what I was going to talk about, you know? And then after, no. after you do it, you're like, okay, that's fine. No, yeah. 
And then, yeah, and then you all see me get flustered on here when technology gives me a hard time. So it's like, good. I'm like you, human, right? We're all yeah. human. All right, friends. Thank you so much for listening, Grace. Thanks so much for dropping all kinds of knowledge on us. This was such a fun conversation to have. And I think that you left us with some really good takeaways. Friends, you can find Grace on Instagram. Her handle is linked in the podcast notes. Go ahead and find her. Give her a shout out. Thank her so much for giving us so much information on this podcast. You can know where to find me at Thanks Morris on Instagram. And hey, hit that rating button, you know, tell us what you think. Tell me what you think. Put the comments in there. Every little bit helps get this podcast out to more listeners if you find it valuable. I appreciate each and every one of you. I hope you're having a great month of May so far. And uh, until next time, bye-bye.